Let's bow our heads for a moment of silent prayer. Amen. It's good to be with you again. Uh, This is not my first time to preach, but it's my first time to preach officially as your pastor for the time being. Last week, Mrs. Edge, the conference president's wife, called me. She's also the communications secretary for the conference. And she said, I'm writing up a little thing about the uh, new pastors in the conference. And the first question she asked me is, what's your philosophy of ministry? And I told her, because that is one of the things I have on the top of my mind, and I will tell you what I told her. In fact, you will hear this from me a lot. The text that, if you want to get inside of my head, is found in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. And this is what it says. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And I looked at that text for a long time and I thought, if what makes people pure and good is hope, then it's my job to give people hope. And then I was reading the book Steps to Christ, and this will be whatever letter she sends out. It says, Satan is constantly seeking to steal away the blessed assurances of Jesus. And I looked at that and I thought, well, if Satan is all the time trying to steal them away, then it's my job to put them back. All right? And uh, you can ask my wife, what is your pastor, your husband's favorite theme to talk about? And she will roll her eyes because she has heard it so much. But my policy as a pastor is that I want to give people hope. Now, if you want to look at that text, I'm going to go to the text that was read in a minute. But go to 1 John chapter 3, because you might as well know what I'm here for. In fact, my telephone number is on the back page of the bulletin. I don't know if it's long distance, but it's a Texas number, and it's my cell phone, and that's the only phone we have. But I want anyone who is in this congregation or anyone who hears this on the web or whatever to know that if there is anything bothering you, you can call me. I do not get tired of talking to people about their problems, and let me tell you why. I know the name of the solution to all problems, and there's nothing I would rather do than listen to your problems and then tell you how you can get close to Jesus, because I can't tell you how to solve your problems, but Jesus can. Amen? And if we can learn how to stay close to Jesus then his Holy Spirit will speak to us and say, this is what you ought to do about that. Because a lot of times people come to a preacher and say, what should I do? And I say, get close to Jesus. And my job is to help people who aren't close to Jesus to get there. Amen? Uh, I'm going to tell you my three definitions of being a pastor and preaching. My definition of preaching is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Amen? And another definition, well, not a definition, but a policy I have when I preach, I got from a Catholic man who attended meetings I was holding, and it was the very first night, and I didn't know him from Adam, and the church was smaller than this one, and the front pew was just in front of where the, uh, I got to talk in this mic, don't I, of where the communion table is. And I got up, and my mouth was coming open, but no sound had come out yet, and he pointed right like that, and his finger was only about three feet from my face, and he said... You're the preacher, and we're the listeners. We hope you get done before we do. (laughs) 
And so I have a policy. I like to get done preaching before everybody gets done listening. Now, I know some people might get done. They might be done already. But I hope and I pray when I work on my sermons is God help me not only tell the truth, but help me to present the truth in such a way that people stay awake and want to listen to what I have to say. So you pray for me that way because sometimes I fail in doing that. Now, the third thing goes right along with that. But I uh, had somebody say, because I, I was in a church, and you do something here that I like. You have the announcements on the screen. Is that right? Because this is a church I tried. Well, they may be listening to this, so I won't say too much. And they learned. I was there five years, and before I was done, uh, I was getting the pulpit most of the time at 1130. But the first few Sabbaths I was there, I didn't get the pulpit till five minutes of 12. And I have a policy. I quit it pretty close to 12 o'clock. And that day I preached for five minutes and sat down. And they said, Pastor, you know, you, you, can, you can go longer than that. I said, well, I had a teacher when I was in college who said every minute you preach past 12 o'clock, you undo a minute's worth of good you did before 12 o'clock. And if you preached at 1230, it'd been better if you hadn't even preached at all. So I'm going to try to do that, though sometimes I get wound up and I go a little bit. But I, dig, I get nervous and my palms get sweaty after 12 o'clock. So now... I want you to look at that text again. Every man who has his hope in him does what? Purify himself. And I used to think it was my job to make people be good. And you know what I discovered when I tried to make people be good? I made people be mad. And I tried to figure that out until I realized I'm the same way. When someone comes along and tries to get me to do what they think I should, even if I already wanted to do it, the very fact that you're trying to get me to do it causes me to push the other way. How many know what I'm talking about? And when I looked at this text, and it says, every man that has his hope purifies himself, you think, well, how can you purify yourself? I don't know, but I do know that when you allow the hope of salvation to be in you from Jesus, it does something inside of you that makes you feel grateful to God. It makes you feel loved toward God. And you begin to be in harmony with God and what he wants, you want to. Amen? Amen. And that's that. what I want to do as your pastor for however long I'm here. I want to say the words that create an atmosphere inside your soul that you come to the place where what is important to God becomes important to you. Amen? Amen. Now, the text that was read this morning is it says, Thou wilt keep him in what? How many like perfect peace? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace who does what? Whose mind is stayed on thee. So I look at the job that I do for the half hour that I get your ears on Sabbath morning is to help you to keep your mind stayed on God because when your mind is stayed on God, you'll have perfect peace. Now, is that the truth? It's what the Bible says and it's the truth. And then it says in the next text, trust in the Lord for how long? How often? Is that like all the time? Because why? You will find your strength in the Lord Jehovah. Now, I have a reputation of doing this. You may know this tune, but you haven't put it. But this text, at least the first one, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. I am a plagiarist. I may have heard of a plagiarist. If I see a text, and that's a good text, I can't write music. If any of you know how to write music, you come talk to me, because I have a lot of scriptures that need to have tunes to them. But what I've been doing in the meantime 
is I know about 40 scripture verses that have tunes to them. But if I see a text I like, I start searching my mind for a tune of another text that fits this one. So now I'm going to sing it to you. And out of self-defense, you start singing as soon as you catch on. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Now there's one person already singing with me, and that's my wife. And she knows that the sooner I get everybody singing, the sooner I'll quit singing and go on preaching. So we're going to do it again. (laughs) Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26, 3. Now, how many know that when you sing something, you remember it longer than when you just hear it? And you know why I know this is true? Because I can remember cigarette commercials from 50 years ago to this very day. How many have noticed that? Let's do it again. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26, 3. Now, I still see some mouths like this. So if the rest of you want me to go on with the sermon, you better look around. And if their mouth isn't moving, say, at least move your mouth, okay? <laughs> Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee, because he trusteth in thee, Isaiah 26, 3. Now we'll do this again, but not right now, because I want to get done with the sermon before 12 o'clock. But in order to help you keep your mind on God, there is a chapter in the Bible. And it says about itself, the chapter does, affirm these things. Constantly, and that, if you look in the bullet or the screen's gone, affirm these things constantly. I'll tell you where that text is. Go to the book of Titus. Now, Titus is a little bitty book. There's only three chapters in it. And it's just before the book of Philemon, which only has one chapter in it. And that's just before Hebrews. That's not very far before you get to Revelation into the Bible. So if you're not comfortable with knowing where everything is, I have just told you. My particular edition of the Bible, it's page 754. So you know it's... No, 1754. It's getting near the end. But it's Titus chapter 3, and I want to start out in verse 8. And notice what it says. Now, I'm old. I am so old that the only Bible I knew of when I was growing up was the King James. So I use that one. The other reason I use it is because the King James is written like poetry, and it's easy to sing it. And as you've already discovered, I like to put Scripture to music because it is so easy to remember. Amen? So if you have another translation, that is all right. I'm not one of these people that say, if King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Because the King James Version wasn't here when Jesus was here. He didn't even speak English. And I was talking to a person one time, and I don't want to offend anybody who's here. But I had somebody was saying the King James is the only one that we should use. And I said, well, the places in the world where the Adventist church is growing the fastest, they don't use the King James Version. They don't even speak English. They speak Spanish, right? And here's why, I'm just making, 
I'm probably offending somebody. But here's what I believe about the different translations. The attitude that you go to the Bible with is more important than the Bible translation that you go to. Because the Bible says, He that willeth to do his will shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether it speak myself. And so even if you are using a translation that has been translated to reflect a certain church's attitude, which there are some out there like that, if you go that to that Bible with a hungry heart wanting to know the will of God and you want to do God's will, the Holy Spirit will be there to help you know the truth. And if you go to the Bible, I don't care, swear, I don't care which translation you use, if you go to the, to the Bible looking for excuses to stay in disobedience, you're going to find them even in the best translation. Amen? All right. But I still preach from the King James. Now, verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. Now, what's a faithful saying? Well, it means it's full of faith, isn't it? And how many know that we need to be full of faith, don't we? And I hear people say, I need more faith. I says, then go to Titus chapter 3, because it says there is a saying here. The words that are in Titus chapter 3 are, have how much faith in them? They're full of it, right? And I have discovered that people who memorize Titus 3, verses 3 through 8, and they keep repeating it over and over, they begin to have their faith in Jesus Christ expand and grow stronger. And I want to do that. And if you call me at the problem, sooner or later we're going to get back to Titus 3 because it's full of faith. And you need everybody who has problems needs faith. Amen? All right. Verse 8, Titus 3. This is a faithful saying. And these things, the things that are written here, I will that thou do what with? Affirm. Now, what does affirm mean? Does it mean you say, oh, yeah, that's true. Is that, is that what affirming is? That's when the preacher pounds the pulpit and says, this, folks, this stuff is the truth, right? And if you are in a conversation with someone, and there's three or four of you standing around, and there's one person who's fairly new to the area, and they ask for direction to some place. And there's somebody else who has been here just a few weeks, and they think they know, and they tell them the directions and you say, well, I don't want to argue with anything, but I've lived here all my life. And I have been there, I don't know how many times, and this is the best way to get there. And the person who's lived in town for a month says, no, you got to. And you don't want this other person to get lost because you like them. And so you start affirming it. How many know what affirm means now? This is something, and you say, this is the truth. I know it's the truth. And if you want to get to heaven, this is the way to go. Because I don't want you to get lost along the way. And that's a good policy for preachers too, isn't it? I want you to go to heaven. And I know that there's going to be detours out there. And Satan's going to try to get you going the wrong way all the time. How many know that Satan does that? So go to Titus chapter 3 and affirm it how often? Have you got the word affirm down? How many got the word affirm down? So is it all right if Pastor Stauffer affirms this? How often should Pastor Stoffer affirm this? How often is constantly? Now, I will admit, I have other sermons. But I remember hearing about a preacher who got up the first Sabbath of church and he preached on the subject, you must be born again. He came back the next Sabbath and he preached, you must be born again. And the third Sabbath, he preached, you must be born again. And the fourth Sabbath, he preached, you must be born again. So the elders got together and said, Pastor, when are you going to preach about something you must, that besides you must be born again? And he said, when you're born again. Amen? So I will, you'll discover that I will deal with this subject often until you come to the place where you not only know it, 
But you are able to give a Bible study on Titus 3 to anybody at the drop of a hat. Because if it's a faithful saying, and God wants us to affirm it, how often? Constantly. Now I want you to notice what it says after that. Because there's a comma after the word constantly. And then it's, there's the word that. And I don't remember very much of the Greek that I took 50 some years ago. 40 some years ago. But the word that comes from a little Greek word that's pronounced like a chicken, hina. And in the Greek, it means more than that. The correct translation is in order that. So what you have here in Titus 3, it says affirm these things constantly in order that those who have believed in God might what? Are you looking? They might what? Be careful to maintain good works. And how many of you recognize innately that one of the purposes for the existence of any kind of church is to get people's behavior to be better what it is than what it is? Am I right? And you recognize when you walk in these doors, one of the things that should be the result of having been here is that you start living a better life than you were living before you came. How many know that that's just kind of innately what church is all about? That is probably why your tithes are still tax-exempt because at one time or another in this country when they decided to make tithes tax-exempt is because they recognized that what happens in church, which is a tax-exempt entity, will help people be better citizens. Amen? And the Ten Commandments don't kill, and the government says don't kill. The Ten Commandments says don't steal. The government says don't steal. That's about the only ones they affirm anymore. But it knows that when you keep the Ten Commandments, you will be a better citizen. Amen? And so those places where they preach what they do, the government recognized it ought to make people better people. Amen? And this country was founded on what they call the Protestant work ethic, which has made this one of the most prosperous countries in the world. Right? Because the Bible says, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it how? With your might. Now, we're kind of losing that, too, but I won't preach about that today. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that you affirm how often? Constantly. That those who have believed in God, and it qualifies it there. Because what I'm going to say to you, if you haven't been born again, if you're not a, a, a loving believer in Jesus, the things I'm going to say won't make you do more works. It'll make you excuse your dis- disobedience. But it says that those who believed in God will be careful to maintain good works. Now, just what we have read in verse 8, how many recognize Titus 3 must be a pretty good chapter? Am I right? Now, notice the last thing it says in verse 8. These things are what? Good and profitable unto men. All right. Now, let's back up in this and find out what this faithful saying is. Now, in preface to it, go back to chapter 2 and look in verse 14. And it's talking of Jesus. How many recognize if you're going to be careful to maintain good works somewhere in all that, you've got to be close to Jesus, right? All right. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from how much iniquity? All of it. And purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now, I know some people look at that and so they work at being peculiar. I don't want you to work at being peculiar. I want you to work at being like Jesus. And if it makes you different than people around you, that's okay. But don't work at being peculiar. Satan would like Christians to do that. Am I right? Work at being like Jesus. All right. A peculiar people. And what will their attitude be toward good works? What? Zealous. 
Now, if you have a different translation, I have a little note here in my margin. It says, enthusiastic. How many of you ever read the text that says, uh, God loveth a cheerful giver? Enthusiastic. I was listening to a preacher on the radio, and he had studied the Greek on it, and he says the Greek here for uh, a cheerful giver was the Greek word hilaros. He says, God loves hilarious givers. All right? And so these people are zealous. Of, they're eager. They are enthusiastic. And uh, once in a while, I will be on vacation, and I'll be in a church where somebody knows me, and they'll come up, and they say, you're a preacher, aren't you? Well, our preacher's gone today, and I'm the elder, and I really don't feel like preaching. Are you willing to preach? And I say, well, willing is really not the correct word. Try eager. All right? And so this is talking about there's a relationship with Jesus that you come to the place where you're not only willing to do his will, you're eager. Am I right? How many want to know what this faithful saying is before 12 o'clock? So that those who believe in God will be eager, enthusiastic, more than even willing. Now, if, if you're willing to come to church, I will take that. But bless your heart, if I do my job right, you'll come to the place where you're not willing to do what's right. You are eager and enthusiastic and zealous to do what's right. Amen? All right. Now, I'm not going to make it. My wife will tell you. If he's only starting in this and it's still 12 minutes to 12, he's not going to make it. So maybe the next time I come back in two weeks, I'll finish this. But I want you to look at verse 3 because this is the beginning of the faithful saying. Now, how many know that if it's a faithful saying that Satan's going to try to get your mind off of it? Am I right? And so look in verse 1 and 2. It says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good, do good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Because what verse 1 and 2 is saying, here are things that Satan does to get your attention off of Jesus. And I have heard some good people, they want to talk, all they want to talk about is how bad the government is. And we know that Jesus is going to take over the government. But I don't think we should spend a lot of time talking about the bad things that we know about. I think we should spend a lot of time talking about the good things that we know about. Amen? And that's what witnessing is. And I had a guy one time, and he gave me a video. And he thought, I'm the pastor. I should know this, and I should play it for my church. And all it was was talking about all the evil things going on in the government. And I said to him, I'm not going to do that. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because I don't want p- people to spending time thinking about how bad the government is. Because the Bible says be subject to them. As long as they don't ask you to violate your conscience, get along with them. Amen? Yes. Now, let's get down to business here. Verse 3 is point number one of this faithful saying, and there are eight of them. I'll try to go through them quickly. Number one, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lust and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. Ooh, I don't want to think about all those things. Do you? However, it's here for a reason. And the reason is one thing that if you are going to live a successful Christian life that you always have to keep in mind is I need Jesus and so do you. Amen? So basically what verse 3 is saying is Without Jesus, this is the way we are. Am I right? And I used to think that the longer you lived the Christian life, you'd finally come to the place where you're really good. But you know what I have discovered? If I have been a Christian for 50 years, 
And then I turn my back on Jesus, I'm going to discover that I was the same sinner that I was 50 years ago. Question, how many of you have ever heard the story about Peter walking on the water? This is a good illustration of what I talk about. How many years would Peter have to practice walking on water before Peter could walk on water without looking at Jesus? How long would he have to do that? How many think if he practiced walking on water by looking at Jesus for 10 years, on the 11th year he'd be able to walk on water without looking at Jesus? How many think he'd be able to do that? What about 11 years? What about 20 years? How about a billion years? It would never happen. Am I right? And you see, I don't care how long you have been a Christian. I don't care what position you hold in the church. I don't care who you are or how good everybody thinks you are or how good you think you are. If you take your eyes off of Jesus, you're going to find out that Satan is still stronger than you. And believe me, he will tempt you with the same sin that he knows is your weakest point. Amen? So point number one, Bob Stoffer, Pastor Bob Stoffer, is a sinner. How many agree with me? How about yourself? How many here know that when you take your eyes off of Jesus and you start looking at the problems of the government or the problems of other people and you start speaking evil of other people, you get your eyes off of Jesus and those old temptations, they begin to come up in your brain. Amen? So point number one of this thing, if you're going to live a successful Christian life, you always, always, always have to be aware, without Jesus, I'm going to sin. Amen? There is no innate goodness in me, contrary to what psychologists tell you. Well, there's good. No. The heart of man is desperately evil. Amen? And so is mine, and so is yours. Amen? And so unless we stay close to Jesus, we're going to fail. That's all there is to it. If you don't stay close to Jesus, you're going to fail. That's why Jesus says in John 15, abide in me. Abide in me. In fact, when you go back to John chapter 3, I already told you verse 3, every man has his hope in him, purifies himself. You go a couple verses later to verse 6, it says, he that abides in him sins not. And for a long time, I'd look at that and I says, and I, I kept, well, what does it mean not to sin? Because we know that not sinning is not possible. And I spent a long time trying to figure out what not sinning meant until it finally dawned on me, I need to spend more time talking about what it means to abide in Jesus and not worry so much about sin, but worry about staying close to Jesus and abiding in Jesus. Amen? Amen. By the way, that's one of my policies as a pastor. I want people to learn how to abide in Jesus. Because if you learn to abide in Jesus, I won't have to tell you to stop sinning. How many know that that's true? Now, maybe I'll break down and do it once in a while, but the only reason I would do it is because what you're doing keeps you from abiding in Jesus. All right. Ready for verse 4. I love verse 4. After that. After what? After the hate, the greed, the lust, and all the terrible things. Does Jesus love us even when we're sinning? It breaks his heart. You know why it breaks his heart? It's because of what it's doing to the people that he loves. That's why God hates sin so much. Is because of what it does to you. And he loves you, and he doesn't want to see you have the effects in your life of what sinning does. Amen? And there's a lot of people in the world who don't like the Ten Commandments because they think it's God is keeping them from doing something that's really fun. That's a lie. That's a lie. God is trying to keep you from doing things that you will regret later on. Amen? So, point number two, verse four. After that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. He loves us even when we sin. Now, there's all kinds of stories in the Bible, and I have five sermons on these five stories 
that I'd like to preach right now, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to give you a little snippet of one of them, and that's out of the book of Hosea. You know who Hosea was, don't you? He was that Spanish preacher that lived back in Bible times, I think. At least his name sounds like Spanish. Anyway, his name was Hosea. How many have heard of Hosea? And the people were not listening to Hosea when he was talking to them about the love of God. And he was praying, Lord, what can I do to get the people to pay attention? And how many know that sometimes God tells people to do strange things? How many know what God told Hosea to do? Hosea was single. He says, Mary Gomer. I won't go into details, but Gomer was not a nice person. She had a bad reputation in town. And the men who had unconverted hearts would visit her often at night. All right? And when God told Hosea, the preacher in town, to marry her, he must have been very surprised. She was surprised. Everybody was surprised. Now there's talk going on all over, you know. Now they're paying attention to the preacher, but in the wrong way. But when you read the story, she marries him. After a few years, she gets tired of being a pastor's wife. She goes back to her old way of living. He tries to win her back. They have some children. They try to win her back. She will not come back. And finally, she becomes what they called a burnt-out old one of those. And nobody wants her anymore. And back in those days, they had slavery. And when there was nothing else that you could do to survive and get food, you'd sell yourself as a slave. Now, it talks about it. People would sell themselves because he knew that if they want me to work, they've got to feed me. And they decided that slavery was better than death. And she was going to, she put herself on the auction block. Who came to buy her back? Jose did. You know why Jose did? Because God says, ah, now the people are going to learn the lesson. Because you know the lesson that God wants people to learn? Is that when you have totally blown it. And you have come to the place where you can't stand yourself. And nobody else wants you. God still wants you. I love that. Brings tears to my eyes that when I have failed my Lord, he still wants me. It reminds me of a story, and I'm taking too long, but it reminds me of a story of a man who was driving across country, and he was a collector of, of antique cars, and he saw an old Model A that a farmer was using to provide shade for his pigs. And it was kind of sunken in the mud. And that's polite words to tell you what was out there in the pig pen. But it was sunken down. But he could see the, the doors and the windows and the pigs going in and out of the door that wasn't there. And he pulled into that place. And he dickered with the farmer until the farmer agreed to sell it to him. And he went to town and he got a U-Haul and a bunch of men and a forklift. And they came and they dug that stuff out of the mud, quote unquote. And he put it on his, on his trailer and he rented a trailer and he was headed home with that thing. And he kept looking in the rear view mirror. Why did he buy that smelly, beat up old piece of rust? Because he liked to restore things. And he was the kind of auto restorer that when he got done restoring it, it was better than it had been when it was brand new. And that's why God loves sinners is because God gets joy of fixing up busted stuff. And if you have come to church today and, and you feel like an old Model T that's been thrown out into the pig pen, there is somebody after you. He wants you because he wants to fix you. And you see, those who restore cars, they don't buy old beat-up cars because of what they are now. It's because of what they know they can make of them. Verse 4 
point number two, God loves sinners. Amen? And you see, if you just affirm constantly those two things, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and he loves me, you will discover that just affirming those two things constantly will go a long way toward helping you have the strength to do what Jesus wants you to do. How many can see that? How many can see that? And you see, a long time in my life, the way I would try to get people to be good is I would try to put them on a guilt trip. I don't believe in righteousness by guilt. I believe in righteousness by faith. Amen? Or I believe that I would scare them a little bit. And I believe there's still some people who need to be scared, like the people in Nineveh. They needed to be scared. And the people that William Miller was preaching to back in the 1830s and early 1840s, they weren't paying attention to the Bible. They needed to be scared. But once you have come under conviction that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus, then God is ready to move you into a different realm of Christianity out of the fear and into the love and the gratitude. Are you with me? All right, that's point two. We have time for a little bit of point three, which is verse five, and this is very interesting because when you look in verse eight, it says, affirm these things how often? Constantly, that those who believe in God will do what? Yeah, you haven't got it yet. Be careful to maintain good works, all right? You might as well start memorizing this, you know, just just get, get ahead of the game here. My, but it says they'll be careful to maintain good works. Now look what it says in verse 5, the first part. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves me. And I have had people use this text to say, see, we don't have to do good works because we're saved by mercy. Is that true? Yes. We are saved by mercy, not by our good works. I want to hear an amen to that. All right, I'll say it again. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by mercy. Amen? And as you get to know me better, oh, by the way, my phone number is in the bulletin. Call me and say, come and visit me. Now, I've been on the phone already, and I've got a couple of appointments, but it would be a whole lot easier if you would call me and say, would you come and talk to me about Jesus? And you say, I would rather rather do that than eat ice cream. All right? I really would. Ice cream, you know what ice cream does. I tell people I'm allergic to sugar. They say, oh, what happens? I says, I break out with fat. <laughs> Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. And if you have even a little bit of God inside of you, those who believed in God, rather than making you excuse your sins and bad habits, believing that you're saved by mercy, and not by your good works. If you affirm it constantly, you'll discover it causes you to want to do more good more good works. Am I right? Have you, I won't tell this story, but I'll save it for another sermon. But have you ever had anybody do something really nice for you? Let's say it's a total stranger. And let's say that you have run out of gas. And somebody comes along and stops. And he not only is willing to help you. But he has five gallons of gas. And he goes around and he pours it in your tank and you offer to pay him. He just laughs at you and he says, I enjoy doing it. He puts the gas can, empty gas can back in his truck and takes off. How many would feel grateful to that man? What if a week later you saw him sitting by the road? Would you stop? Absolutely. Why? Because you're grateful. And the kind of obedience that God wants from us is not the kind of obedience that says, oh, I better do that or I'm going to be lost. Now, that kind of obedience may be a place to start, but the kind of obedience 
that God loves is the kind of obedience that you have spent time saying, look what Jesus has done for me. When I'm at my worst, he still loves me. And he gives me the gift of salvation, not because I'm worthy of it, but because he loves me and has mercy on my soul. This is not the end of the sermon, but I have a policy. I want people, I want to quit preaching while they still want to hear more. All right? So you come back next week and hear somebody else and come back in two weeks and I will finish this. But I want you to remember that what you have here in the book of Titus is a faithful saying. And if you have even been born again a long time ago, if you will affirm these things, even the first three things, I'm a sinner. Say it. I'm a sinner. Jesus loves me. And he saves me. Not because I've been good, but because he has mercy on my soul. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God will be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto man. Dear Jesus in heaven, help us to know that the greatest sin that we commit is that we allow other things to divert our attention away from, look what Jesus has done. And Father, I've discovered that sometimes Satan will even keep me from Jesus by making me feel guilty for the things that I have done or the things I should have done and I didn't do. And sometimes, Jesus, we even act as Satan emissaries to direct people's attention away from Jesus to the things they should or should not have done. But help us, Jesus, to know that where we get our strength is looking at what Jesus has done and rejoicing in what Jesus has done. And when we keep looking and rejoicing and thanking Jesus for what he has done, that then will give us the desire and the strength to do. This is my prayer for us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing him, 441, the blessed hope. How many like the blessed hope? I saw one weary, sad, and torn, with eager steps press on the way, who long the hallowed cross had borne, still looking for the promised day. While many of, and I can't remember all the words you got, of grief and care upon his brow was furrowed there, I ask, what boys your spirits up? Oh, this, said he, the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by mercy. Amen? Amen. Dear Father in heaven, I pray today that while I'm in this area, you will give me all kinds of opportunities to preach and to visit and give people the blessed hope because that's the only thing The hope in Jesus, that's the only thing that will buoy our spirits up while we live in this world. And I pray, Father, that you'll help every one of us when we look at whoever we look at, the guy who's going slow in front of us in the car or the person behind us honking their horn. Help us to think of that person and pray for them and say, Lord, help me do something so that the people around me, my neighbors, the people I work with, the person I pass on the street, I pray that you'll help me find a way to give them hope. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.